0: We're going to start a new series today. We're going to have a summer through the Psalms, and so it's, I have the responsibility to kind of kick off our series, which I'm looking forward to. It's not going to be 151 weeks, obviously. It'll be many summers in the Psalms. We're going to spend 12 to 15 weeks in the Psalms. We're going to have a team of teachers that are rotating through and teaching through isolated Psalms, doing expositions of Psalms. Uh, there's not any particular arrangement or any particular theme that we're going for, just going to choose individual psalms, teach those during Sunday school to help us get a feel for, for really what we've been reading through for the last long while during our scripture reading time and our worship services. So really looking forward to that, looking forward to hearing from the different men that are going to teach and being blessed by their gifts and their study and just seeing what the Lord does as we press in a little bit further into some of these psalms. Today's going to be A bit more of a classroom lecture, a bit more of a Bible survey type introduction to the Psalms. I really just want to orient you a little bit to the Psalter. We're going to be hearing messages from individual Psalms, so it's helpful for us to think about how the Psalms are different than other genres and other portions of Scripture. Because that's what I want to do this morning. You've got a handout, it's got all kinds of stuff in there. Um, you know, especially the last part where it says some themes, that's stuff that you guys can go through on your own. We're not going to look at all those verses. If you were looking at that, holding your breath on my behalf, uh, let me just relieve you of that burden. We may not even go through any of those. That's for you. Uh, Again, those are taken from Bible survey course notes, from seminary and some other things. Just wanted you to have that information if you want to study along as we're teaching through individual Psalms this summer. When we studied through the minor prophets, we said that they were kind of like those crazy uncles that you know are family, but that you're a little bit afraid to talk to. And that, you know, they have wisdom and there are very good things to say, but they're strange and so you avoid them. And hopefully after our study there, we became more comfortable uh, talking to those relatives. Here, the Psalms are like that friend that's very in touch with their emotions. It's like the creative type. They're very expressive in the way they respond to the experiences of life. They're maybe more right-brained than, than average. And for some of you, you're right at home. That's like your closest friend. You are that friend. And so you're there. You are Psalm 130, out of the depths, Lord. My soul long... That's every day. That's, you just want breakfast. And out of the depths, Lord. I, cry, I mean, that's just how you're wired. And some of us get very uncomfortable with the more emotional language. It's like, am I allowed to say that? Uh, that sounds just more touchy-feely than I'm accustomed to. Am I allowed to talk to God that way? Am I allowed to expose my feelings before Almighty God in the way that the psalmist does? And so we think about the psalms, there's, there's balance for both of those perspectives. The psalms are much more than just the emotional outcry of a believer, They're not less, make sure we make that clear, they're not less than that. They are the emotional outpouring of believers dealing with the circumstances of life and theologizing in real life, in real circumstances. But they're not just an emotional sort of prayer guide to help us kind of be more expressive in our faith. They're richly and deeply theological. And uh, we want to see that, we want to know that. They're not, it sounds bad to say, just prayers. They're not less than prayers. They're not less than hymns. They're not less than the songbook for Israel, but they're more. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's very interesting. And if you were in first service, you just heard Pastor Rick teach through Ephesians where Paul uses a psalter. And when you see how the psalms are quoted in the New Testament, they're often not given there to help us see how believers reflected on the experiences of life. They're there to teach deep and dense theological truths. Um... Jesus quoted the Psalms, Paul quoted the Psalms, and they did that to teach very deep theological realities. In fact, I I had a hard time, and there may be some there, so you can double check me on this, but thinking of New Testament references to the Psalms where they're there to show, look how the psalmist poured out his heart, that's not really in our New Testament. Doesn't mean, again, that that's not why it's there. We have an entire Psalter for that purpose, but it's more than that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So the Psalms, they're so important for us to help us have a greater breadth of understanding God's works and God's ways. He didn't have to give us poetry like this, but he did. And it's inspired. And that means that it helps us in a different way, in a more nuanced way than the epistles do, or than the historical narrative do, or than the law in Deuteronomy does. It plays a unique role in our life and faith and in the canon of Scripture. So they help us have a greater breadth of understanding God's works and God's ways, and the way that God's people are to respond to God's works and God's ways. So some introductory and you know, a Bible exposition information designations. We you see the Hebrew uh, praises. It's an alliteration. The Hebrew term there for praises, and the Greek Old Testament or the Septuagint. That's what's designated by the LXX Psalmoi or Psalms. And that's ancient designation for hymns and these songs. Authors and dates is kind of fun uh, because a lot of this is based on superscriptions that in a minute we're going to say, like, well, are they inspired? I don't know. They're important. But all to say, I've given you kind of a survey of, of the authors. You see David, who Scripture calls the sweet psalmist, had most of the psalms, at least the designated psalms. And, but it's interesting to see, the, the one in there from Moses, a couple from Solomon, and then Ethan, which kind of stands out. Uh, Moses, Solomon, who's Ethan? But that's the, that's the authors. And then the dates, what a range. So, so if Moses wrote Psalm 90, you've got 1400 BC. And then when you look at Psalm 126 or Psalm 137, there's hints about the exile in those Psalms, which would take that to 450, 400, 500 BC, somewhere in there. So quite a range of dates the Psalter. How is the Psalter organized? Many, many, many books have been written about this. Much ink has been spilled about this, and it's probably given more importance than it should be, but I do want you to have. There is some organization and arrangement to the Psalter. The Psalms are divided into five books. The Psalter is divided into five books. I've given you those. It's interesting that at the end of each book, there's a concluding doxology. It's like a, a concluding right? Refrain of praise and recognition that kind of links the, the books together. There are, well, some say that Psalms 1 and 2 are like an introduction to the whole Psalter. And then some Psalms 146 through 150 are kind of like the conclusion. And there may be some validity to that, but we don't have any you know, explicit biblical warrants to that other than they're first and that the from 46 to 150 are last, and that some of the themes in Psalm 1 seem very big and less very specific and situational, and Psalm 2, very big and eschatological, and others are more minute and situational, and so there may be some validity to that. But I'm telling you all this to say scholars have gotten carried away at attempts to give weight to the compilation or the order of the books. And so thematic development across the Psalter, canonical significance, which means how their position in the canon, how their, their particular way they're arranged and how they're read then informs how we read other scripture and how other scripture informs how we read those. But say all of that, much of that, it's good to be aware that there's organization that their are books, but we're not going to give a ton of credence to that. So Derek Kidner, he has a very helpful quote. He's a commentator, has a good commentary on the Psalms. He says, the picture that emerges, this is the picture of the ordering of the Psalms, is a mixture of order and informality of arrangement, which invites but also defeats the attempt to account for every detail of its final form. While there has been no lack of theories, which tend to reflect the thought forms of successive ages, any scheme which discovers a logical necessity in the position of every Psalm probably throws more light on the subtlety of its proponent than on the pattern of the Psalter. I like that. He says, the psalter's structure is perhaps best compared with that of a cathedral, built and perfected over a matter of centuries in a harmonious variety of styles, rather than a palace, displaying formal symmetry of a single and all-embracing plan. Basically, what he's saying is don't get too carried away with diving into the organization and why Psalm 41, the 41st Psalm, and why did it come before this, and does this book emphasize interesting studies, but we don't want to give too much weight to that and get lost in those things. Starting in the early 20th century, there was kind of a culmination of what we call form-critical studies. And what they did is they analyzed, those studies and scholars analyzed the psalms, and they analyzed all kinds of things in the psalms, commonalities in supposed life setting or historical context, style, repeated terminology, feel, mood. And so form analysis then resulted in a kind of a baseline of what we might call forms or types of psalms. And so all subsequent study the best, even the most conservative commentators and scholars deal with forms and types of psalms. So if you've heard before, well, this is a praise psalm. This is a lament psalm. This is a wisdom psalm. This is a royal psalm. This is an enthronement psalm. This is a lament, wisdom, praise psalm, right? That's the, that's the product of, of that study and all subsequent studies have had to deal and interact with that. And it can be helpful to an extent. It's helpful this way. It helps us recognize common patterns and form in particular psalms that are repeated when it's easily observable in the text. Where it becomes unhelpful, though, is when you hear that or somebody says that and then you shoehorn every verse in God's word in a particular psalm into this form. And so then you want to say things like, well, this lament psalm, because it's a lament psalm, this verse has to mean this. And that's when type and form become unhelpful. So you'll often hear particular types. And so I've given you example lists. These are just two lists uh, of many. And if you pull enough study or you do enough study on your own of the Psalms or you read on the Psalms, you'll come across this. It's everywhere. And so this isn't, I'm not saying this to you uh, just because I, it's superfluous. Like It's helpful if you're studying the Psalms, you're reading on the Psalms to be aware of where these types come from. I remember kind of the first time studying this, years ago, and and like looking back, like seeing all this lament psalm, and I'm like looking like like in the psalm itself, like, man, does it say that in there? They're very sure about this. And realizing, no, it's just, it's scholarship over time. And it can be helpful organization, but we don't want to give too much credence to that either. So you've, you see the two example lists. Those are both lists from conservative commentators. You can see how they're different. And if you study enough, you can see lists that are twice this long, because they're the ending of our classification of Psalms, there is no end. So, but I wanted you to be aware of those. But here's some cautions. Look at Psalm 32, very well-known Psalm. In Psalm 32, you have this first initial outpouring of, of praise. How you know, an an expression of truth. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven? How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? Then it transitions to basically, it's biographical. Like, it's there's almost like historical narrative in poetic form. David's talking about himself and his experience. And then in the middle, verse 6, based on his own experience, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly, pray to you in a time when you may be found. So there's this expression of instruction. Then you get to verse 8, and it starts to sound more like a proverb. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. So you see just in this, this is one example of many, but you see there's, there's, there's different Focuses within the, the psalm. Different. It has a different feel in the different sections. This it demonstrates it's it's complicated to say. Oh well, this is a this type of a psalm or this is a that type of psalm. There's more nuance in a lot of the psalms than those labels um, can can bear. So if you look at First 1 Chronicles 16:4, we maybe suggest a a broader and more biblical classification. Start up in 161, and when they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord even to celebrate or to remember and to thank And praise the Lord God of Israel. And then you see the names that are there. So, remembrance, thanks, and praise is a helpful broad designation of what we see in the Psalms. So, form and types can be helpful, but we don't want to give them too much weight that would cause us to ignore nuances in the Psalms as we read. And I just know from personal experience, it can be discouraging to say, oh, this is a wisdom psalm, and you're reading and you're thinking, this sounds more like something else, but this guy over here that wrote this book and is published is telling me it's a lament psalm, so I need to bend my understanding of the text to fit this form, and that's backwards. So helpful, but ultimately not authoritative. What about psalm titles and superscriptions? Psalm titles and superscriptions. If if you look back at Psalm 32... you have a New American Standard, you see a couple things. First, you see something that says blessedness of forgiveness and of trust in God, which that's just a translator's summary, chapter summary, essentially. But then underneath of that, you see a Psalm of David, a maskeel. And that would be a superscription, what I'm referring to as a superscription. And there's debate. Are the superscriptions original and are they inspired? So first of all, we all let me just acknowledge the obvious. But if you're reading and those two lines are close in your Bible, the one is a translator's chapter summary that I'm not talking about that at all. The other is a superscription. And the question is, how much validity, how much weight should we give to these superscriptions? Should we read them when we read the psalm? Is it important? Is this scripture? And so I'll just give you a couple of thoughts about that. So one is, again, be careful not to confuse translation summaries with psalm titles uh, and superscriptions, and the terminology there. And I'll just say at the beginning, and then I'll say this again at the end, but I'm not prepared to call them inspired, but there's a lot of warrant to see them as very historical and important. So a nice mediating middle ground there. Not inspired, but they're important, and there's, there's histor- they're, they're historical, and there's warrant to see them as historical and ancient, um, even predating the New Testament times. So let's look briefly, look at Second Samuel chapter 22. Second Samuel 22 verse one says, "And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him." from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So that's inspired scripture. And then you look at Psalm 18, verse 1, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So certainly in this case, there's accuracy between this ancient designation and what we see reflected in Scripture, inspired Scripture. If you're thinking of Psalm 32 still and that term, a mesquil, and you see other terms when you read through the Scriptures, and everyone always says, I have no idea what that means. It may mean a wisdom song. It may mean with stringed instruments. It may mean with stringed instruments... With wisdom and soft talking, or something like, there's just a lot of different terms that we throw out and say, "Well, it's maybe this and it's maybe this." The fact is, a lot of those terms that we have no idea where they came from originated before the time of Christ, before the New Testament. They're ancient, and that's why we don't know what they mean. But they show that there is historical precedent for the terms, and that they're they're very old. They weren't added, you know, in the 1500s or something. Also, we can compare in a couple places of Scripture that are interesting to see how the New Testament writers and New Testament individuals speaking like Jesus Christ referred to the author of Psalms where nothing in the Psalm states the author except the superscription. So if you look at Matthew chapter 22... So Matthew chapter 22, also it would be uh, Luke 20, verse 42. But Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Then he again says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he? his son. So he's quoting Psalm 110 and clearly attributing Psalm 110 to David. And when you look at Psalm 110, the superscription says that it's of David, but nothing in the psalm says that. And so it's just an interesting observation where Christ clearly attributes that to David. Nothing in Psalm 110 explicitly says anything about David except the superscription. Similarly, if you look at Acts chapter 2, the same type of pattern happens. Acts chapter 2. Peter preaching, Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 25, referring to Christ. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. And he goes on. So he calls, it, he calls that a Psalm of David. Attributes authorship of those words to David. And if you look at Psalm 16, which he was quoting, again, you have a miktam of David as the superscription. Nothing in the psalm itself says anything about David. And so those on the side of thinking that superscriptions may even be inspired, look at those observations and say, like, look, I mean, They're attributing authorship to David. There's nothing in the Psalm that says David. These superscriptions were likely there when they're referencing these texts, and so they're giving validity to those those superscriptions. And and that's a good point, and it's possible. Um, However, there is an alternative example. So if you just look over to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, again, another sermon where a psalm is going to be quoted. So picking up mid-sentence here verse 25 who by the holy spirit through the mouth of our father david your servant said and then he quotes the psalm and it's psalm 2. So here david david davidic authorship is attributed psalm 2 you look at psalm 2 no superscription. says nothing. So that would be an evidence that says there's no superscription in the text, there's an attribution of authorship. So just attributing authorship in the New Testament doesn't necessarily prove that the superscriptions are inspired. I don't know if any of you find this interesting. I'll move on quickly. But point being, what do you do with those superscriptions? Uh, I think that they're important. I think that there's historical precedent for seeing them as important. I think it's helpful to read them when you read the Psalm. I think that when you see the Lord attributing authorship to David, that we shouldn't just say, well, of course, he was Jesus. Like he inspired it anyway, like he knew David wrote it. That very well may be true, but I don't think that's why he's telling the Pharisees who were not inspired and did not inspire scripture, he's appealing to them something that they would recognize, which is how does David say, right? They had to know also that it was Davidic authorship for his argument to even work. And so there's some validity to the, the historical precedent that these New Testament individuals are referring back to the superscriptions. But then Acts 4 comes in and Psalm 2's got nothing. And so it throws a wrench into the theory that just because they're there doing this, that it's automatically inspired. So historical, yes. Important, I think so. Inspired, infallible part of holy scripture, I'm not quite comfortable enough to say that. All right, next. So how could you maybe sum up the Psalms? We're looking for a, a summary of the purposes of the Psalms. I've given that to you in your handout. I would say this. The Psalms call us to worship the God who rules all things by remembering and trusting his promises, by responding to the ups and downs of life in light of who he is, and by longing for the completion of all his saving work. So a lot of the psalms are, are praised. That's one of the fundamental purposes of the psalm, praise to Almighty God who rules everything. But then the people in making those praises and in reading back later, the psalms are called to remember and trust God's promises, right? Regularly, the promises are recounted. The history of Israel is recounted and then promises and future promises that had not yet been completed on behalf of God's people are explained. And then we see what we mentioned earlier, which there are psalms of lament, and there are personal experiences that are reflected in the psalm. And so we see that in light of the God who rules all things and in light of his promises and the calls to trust, the psalmist responds. And you see this flow sometimes in the psalms where you see him go down through the depths, but how he comes out of the depths because of the God who rules all and his trust and his faith in those promises. And then you see where we would call it a longing for the completion of all his saving work, and by that I just mean the end of all things, For, for Christ to return, for God to establish his kingdom, for eternity to come, for all of his promises to his people, Israel, and to the church to be fulfilled and completed. That is expressed in the Psalms when they're asking for righteous judgments on behalf of his people that maybe haven't yet occurred. And asking for God's holy city and holy mountain to be finally and fully set up and for the king to finally and fully be recognized. And so we have a forward-looking aspect of these psalms where they should cause God's people to read them, and those particular ones, to long for eternity. Again, because God rules all things and will bring everything to completion, and because he's given us promises that we're called to then trust and to respond to life's ups and downs, in light of those promises. So all that kind of jammed together, right? There's 150 Psalms, and they're not all the same. But that kind of gives a broad swath of how we can look at the purposes of the Psalms. So how, what can we do to improve our reading and understanding of the Psalms? This section in your handout, toward a better reading of the Psalms. I just want to give a few uh, points that I, I think will help our reading of the Psalms and our interaction with the Psalms. First, generally, consider each psalm in its entirety, and the weasel word generally is there because of Psalm 119, okay, even though we considered it in its entirety when Pastor Rick read the whole thing for us, which he will let you know he did without comment in the middle, which Aaron and I challenged him and said he couldn't do. I think he got around it because he introduced the whole thing with comments, but that's, that's fair, and... He read the whole thing and did not stop and pause for any commentary. And I, I didn't think he could do it. But he did. But so generally is there because I, you know, that psalm clearly has points where it breaks down, and there's themes within the psalm. But of course, Psalm 119 is unique. But generally, you want to consider each psalm its an entirety. There's a movement and flow to the psalms. And while any verses can certainly be pulled out and studied in depth, and poetic couplets and and those sort of things can be pulled out and looked at and studied and analyzed, and there's a place for the detailed study of individual verses. The Psalms need to be understood in their entirety, each Psalm, you read it through. It is a complete work. And so as we read earlier, Psalm 32, can you understand David's feelings of blessedness when you just read the first few verses? Of course. But that whole Psalm is intended to say more than that. And so you wanna read the entire movement through the psalm to really get a feel for what that psalm is intended to convey. So you want to read kind of the whole thing, and as you're doing that, you kind of want to look for a unifying theme and consider the flow of thought. So how do you identify unifying themes in the psalms as you read them and as you're just interacting with this poetry? Well, you have to observe the features of poetry, and this isn't something that you like learn one time and then you never have to think about it again, and then you just read the Psalms, and you're always quick to say, oh, that's a metaphor, that's a simile, that's a, not, not at all. This is something that happens the more and more that you're exposed to the Psalms, and you recognize the different aspects of, this, of the genre that God has given us this truth to. And so there are various features of poetry that we, to read the Psalms rightly, right? We read the Psalms differently than we read Romans, agreed? And that's by God's design. And so when I say observe the various features of poetry, that's that's all I'm saying. Just honor the genre that God gave us his word in. So remember that the psalmist used figurative language. He's figurative language. Right? Psalm one, he will be like a tree planted. He will be like a tree. Not he will be a tree, not symbolic stuff beyond that he will be like a tree firmly planted where we start diving in and, well, what's he saying about me to be more tree-like, to be more, uh, and we, it just, it's figurative language, right? And we have that throughout the Psalter. And so as you read, you're, you're going to be encountered with imagery and we have to account for figures of speech, simile, metaphor, hyperbole. The Psalms have hyperbole. As poetry, there's hyperbole. Right when David expresses the all-encompassing sort of transcendence and immanence of God, and he says, "Where can I go from Your presence?" and he says, "Right, I can go to the highest of highs and the lowest of lows." I mean, that's, that's hyperbole, right? David didn't have the ability to go to the far extents of the heavens or down into the depths of Sheol, right? He's expressing hyperbolically the truth that he was communicating. So we see hyperbole, and there are many, many others. But it's important to recognize genre and figurative language when you're interpreting and you're reading and allow it to be figurative. Similarly, there's parallelism, which is throughout the Psalms, and there are like so many different, at this point, sub-classifications of parallelism, and we're not even going to try to go into all of those. But parallelism is simply, right, parallel thought expressed in similar grammar, similar sentence length, similar vocabulary, Things like that. So let's just look briefly at an example. Psalm 6. Psalm 6. Verse 9. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. That's parallelism. Those two lines are saying one thing. Right? Right? not two separate things. You wouldn't read this and say, okay, so I have supplications and then I have prayers. And he hears my prayers, but he receives my supplications, right? No, it's the same thing in Hebrew poetry, parallel making the point to emphasize what he's saying poetically, right? I think I gave you a couple other examples. Just, let's just illustrate the importance of genre and particularly recognizing parallelism and look at a couple pitfalls if we don't. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, verse 105. Many of you have this memorized. You don't need to turn there. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right, wonderful truth. That's parallel. Parallel. You can imagine the trouble that we'd get into if we started to dissect that, right? You imagine the counsel to somebody, brother, you're doing a good job of allowing the word to be a lamp to your feet, but he has to light your path, right? It's, it's silly, but you bro- you, we break things down too far that we're not intended to break down. This says one thing. Parallelism has to be recognized. Psalm 51, verse 2. Similarly, right? You don't want to over extricate, I guess, overemphasize and then pull out terminology that's in parallel and overemphasize the distinctions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Well, are iniquity and sin two different terms? They are two different terms. But if you get hyper hyper classify that and act as if one of those things could happen, but maybe the other one didn't happen or ask the Lord for one, or or a scribe, well, he did this one, but you you get into a lot of theological trouble pretty quick. So it's just recognizing parallelism and allowing it to be poetic and seeing that parallelism is more than one line, more than one term, more than one thing, but stating one main idea. And that's one of the predominant aspects of Hebrew poetry. You see repetition, repeated words or phrases that help you understand what the psalmist wants to emphasize, Sometimes this happens as a refrain. Psalm one oh seven is a great example of that. Say, what's this Psalm about? It's giving thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Right? Because that's repeated throughout. I'm giving you that example. Sometimes you see what we might call an inclusio or bookends, which bracket or envelope or envelope the entire section of a psalm that help you see the main idea. So even though you have a main idea stated, and then even though the psalm may kind of go up and down and change directions, and then it comes to the end and it lands where it started, and that helps you see, well, that's linkage, that everything in the middle, like I should have these, this opening and, and ending bookend guiding my thinking as I read and, and try to understand the different shape. And different flow in the psalm. And you see that with something we call stitching, which is maybe repetition of a word that helps link all the, the stanzas or the phrases or the couplets or whatever of the psalm together. So you want to recognize those very various aspects. Again, this isn't something like, it's just being familiar as you read the psalms. So please don't be discouraged. Like, think, like I don't read the psalms with like a guide, a, an English grammar that lists out the 27 different figures of speech um, that I don't remember. And I do try to identify every single, uh, please don't hear me saying that at all. It's just recognize the poetic genre that you're reading when the Psalms, and you're going to encounter these things. And it should it should caution us from treating them like epistolary material uh, or historical narrative when it's not narrative and trying to to interpret or understand in the same exact way. We need to recognize these various features of poetry. Also, then, you want to note the theology that undergirds the expressions of the psalmist. Now, what do I mean by that? The theology that undergirds the expressions of the psalmist. That is the theology that's actually behind the expressions of faith. The theology that then motivates and supports the praise. So this is what we said at the beginning. These are not simply heartfelt prayers of a sojourner. They're not less, but they're more. They're not only the emotional expression that some of us long for. They don't only give voice to our spiritual emotions, if you will. They're they're more than that because they're undergirded by deep and dense theology. So I, I referenced this earlier, but just think, in Romans 3, Paul quotes a whole bunch of psalms all together to demonstrate the depravity of mankind. He's teaching very logically and very thoroughly justification by faith alone. And before he gets there, it has that there is none good, not even one, right? Psalm 14 and another psalm. And then in between there, there's like three or four other psalms that are just stacked up all together. And he does all of that to teach very propositionally the depravity of mankind. If you go to those psalms in the original context, they say much more than that. There's the experience of the psalmist and how he's experiencing evil. Psalm 14, for example, it doesn't, it's not a whole psalm about the depravity of mankind, But Paul uses those psalms to teach theology. And so that helps us see that there's theology that the psalmist had. And then when he expressed his faith, that theology informed it. And that's what's flowing out through the psalm. And so you don't read a psalm like you read Romans 3 or Romans 4. But you see that there are theological reasons why the psalmist says what he says. Now sometimes there's very clear theology expressed when it says that God rules the earth it's pretty straightforward. In John 10, 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, 6 to refute the Pharisees' false assertions. He, in doing so, he makes a point about the infallibility of Scripture, and he basically says, how are you not okay with me saying I'm the Son of God? Because in this psalm, there's terminology of calling individuals sons of God. And it's, like, it's a very interesting usage of the psalm. Paul in Ephesians, as you'll hear in second service or as you already heard in first service, uses the psalm in an interesting way, teaching theology. If you read the psalms, they teach that theology, but there's more in the whole psalm than what the New Testament writers are doing with those. So what's the point of saying all that? Just that there's theology behind the psalm. So as you read Psalm 32, there's an awful lot of theology that's informing his expression, saying how blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, right? And so you're seeing the outflow of someone who wrote that, who had theology that then informed their praise, and that's instructive for us. So we learn theology from the Psalms, but we don't do it in the same way that maybe we do when we're reading Hebrews. So should we engage the emotions of the Psalms? Of course, absolutely. God gave them to us in that form. But the sweet Psalmist of Israel was more than a poet in touch with his emotions. He was a prophet and a theologian, and there's theology that is undergirding and supporting all of his expressions of praise and thanksgiving. And then we remember when the inspired theologians of the New Testament referenced the Psalms, often they were doing so to teach very specific theological principles. So then as we read the Psalms, you say like, okay, well, what about the takeaways? These are so personal. So how do I apply? How do I take this outside of the original historical context and how it relates to David? And there are several things, but you want to look for timeless spiritual principles that are valid and applicable to all people. And sometimes they're situational or the same and circumstantial. You may be going through a trial. You may be going through a season of despondency or despair. And so those Psalms help there. There's more direct application there for you in those times. And so we want to take valid spiritual principles that can be informed by the circumstances of the psalmist. And seek to find those principles and apply them to our life. One example, and it's the quote I gave you at the top of your handout, is what Calvin says about prayer. These Psalms teach us how to pray. He says, as calling upon God is one of the principal means of securing our safety, and as a better and more unerring rule for guiding us in this exercise, cannot be found elsewhere than the Psalms. You, know, you won't find a better guide for how to pray than the Psalms. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught us in this book. That's one example of how to benefit and apply the Psalms. We see them as exemplary in how to pray, for example. So look for timeless principles. Now, this brings up the question, what about imprecations? What about imprecations? Well, sometimes we're too quick to say that there's been this massive change, that now we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Well, we are commanded to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. But that's not quite as, as, as new as we sometimes think. Leviticus 19:18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there it forbids vengeance. And he says, don't bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Similarly, and even maybe more broadly, that you could say, well, that's limited to the the community of Israel. Okay, that's true. It was talking about neighbors within the community of faith. And the imprecations in the Psalms are often dealing with those outside of God's people. uh, Proverbs 25, verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So giving your enemy food and giving him drink when he is thirsty. Like we read those, that sounds a lot different than the impregnatory Psalms, some of them. The reason I read those is because that's from the Old Testament, so we have those commands, which are two of other examples, that come before Christ's command, which I mentioned again, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which finds right commonality with what I just read in Proverbs and otherwise. But then you get into the New Testament, and you see examples of how we're to think about God's justice and vindication and vengeance. Romans chapter 12 Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But then he says, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he quotes what we just read. So clearly he's saying that we're not to take vengeance, but he also says that the reason why we're not is because the Lord will, which when you have imprecations in the Psalms, he's asking for the Lord to take vengeance, Similarly, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Writing to a persecuted people who are enduring persecutions and afflictions according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says this, starting in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Paul says that truth, that sobering truth, to encourage believers who are enduring persecution. He tells them that the Lord Jesus is gonna come back and they're gonna be vindicated when vengeance is poured out on those who don't know God. And so for that to be a hope To the people who are enduring persecution, clearly they had to have some capacity for thinking of God's righteous justice, his vindication, and themes that we hear in the imprecations in the Psalms. When you look at some of the imprecations in the Psalms, the purposes that we even see uh, for judgment, temporal judgment in the New Testament are there. Psalm 83 says, ask the Lord to basically afflict evildoers so that they'll come to know the Lord. So what's kind of the upshot of all of this? Well, first of all, the psalmist was not simply praying imprecations against people he had a problem with. I know we all know that, but we need to say it. It wasn't just personal. Okay, so David in particular, right, God's king of Israel was a representative of God and a representative of the nation. That meant that David's enemies were Israel's enemies and they were God's enemies. All of that is within a covenantal framework where God had made particular promises to a nation and to his king. And so when enemies were raised up against and aligning themselves against David, they were aligning themselves against God in a very direct and obvious way in accordance with God's covenant and his people. And so when David prays that those enemies would be dealt with, that's in accordance with the covenant promises that God gave to David and the people of Israel. So it's not simply David was upset, somebody was messing with him, and he asked the Lord, inflict vengeance on this person who's making my life miserable. It was, it was deeper than that. It had a far, far wider scope in terms of the nation and people and covenant. So those imprecations were prayers for God's righteous judgments to govern the nations and for God to uphold Israel in accordance with his promises. So we want to acknowledge that it's not a one-for-one one when we read the imprec- imprecatory Psalms. We don't want to put ourselves personally in the position of David And you have a neighbor who is knocking over your trash cans with their car. And so, you know, you're asking the Lord to help resolve that inconvenience. That's certainly not what that is. Right? They're deep and they involved God's purposes and his plans for his people. That said, it's not wrong to pray for justice and for God's righteous vindications to be manifested. That's a part of our life as God's people and a part of our theological thinking. So we should not put ourselves in the position of king and Israel's monarchy and mimic those imprecations for all of our personal experiences. However, we should seek to have spirit-filled thinking and praying that extols God's justice along with God's grace. We have to have tension in our minds and hearts and in our experience. So it's okay to ask that the Lord would deal righteously and justly and that he would be vindicated in his dealings with the wicked. When you see atrocities committed, as we recently have in the news, should you pray for the salvation of that individual? Yeah, you should. And should you pray that this demonstration of evil would shake people awake to their need for the gospel and for God's righteousness? Yes, and you should pray for that. But is it also okay to pray that justice and righteousness would be manifested in the judgment of evil? It is, and it's right, and it reflects God's character so we have to do both. So when you think about the imprecations, they help us see that it's right to extol God for his justice and his righteousness. And we see that preeminently poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise him for that. Not only the grace and mercy shown, but also the righteousness upheld when he rightly punished sin. But when we ask for his righteousness to be maintained in that way and for justice to be demonstrated on behalf of those who have been afflicted, we should also recognize that we deserve condemnation ourselves and that we found mercy. So there's a whole bunch of balancing that we want to do. You don't want to throw out all the imprecations and say those were for a bygone time. The New Testament era is different. It is different in some ways. But they're instructive for us as David asks for the Lord's righteous purposes to be maintained. It's right to want evil punished and righteous judgments to be displayed in the earth as a reflection of God's character. But it's wrong to be vindictive for personal reasons, not thinking of God's saving purposes. All right, I'm not, we're not gonna look, as I said, at the themes that are in the Psalms. Those are for you. And those are just some. There, there are so many. I think Paul House in his Old Testament theology uh, it's just a, a better summary than, of course, I could come up with. And so I've given you that in your handout. And it just it helpfully shows and communicates the, the richness of the Psalter. And when we read that and see the richness of the Psalter, it helps us understand the importance that we're familiar with this portion of Scripture. If you're predisposed or you are more of the emotional thinking type, Think about the historical significance, the redemptive purposes that are expressed in the Psalms, the theology that we can see in them. And if you're more of the non-emotional type, you're more Romans 3 and 4 than you are Psalm 32, then be informed by the heartfelt outpourings of praise and thanksgiving and lament that are in the Psalms and see a faithful example of how to navigate life's circumstances with faith, even during hardship. Paul Howe says this, no other Old Testament book, I mean, that's an astounding statement. No other Old Testament book has the theological and historical scope that Psalms displays. As a theological document, the book embraces the full range of biblical confessions about the Lord's character, activity, and concerns. Here God is called creator, sustainer, Protector, Savior, Judge, Covenant Maker, and Restorer. Here, the whole range of divine actions that give content to those names unfold. And here, the historical settings that provide the context for theological reality and reflection are stated as well. All the major events of Israelite history, creation, the life of Abraham, the Exodus, the conquest, the monarchy, the exile, the return to the land are mentioned to anchor the book's confessions to daily human life. Given the comprehensive nature of the psalm's comments about God's supreme power within history, it is proper to analyze their theological contribution under the overall theme of the God who rules. It is this God that Israel celebrates, confesses, and worships. It's helpful. It's helpful for us to see how much more is here than, than maybe just songs, maybe just hymns, maybe just emotional poems if we've thought that way. Again, they're not less than songs, emotional poems, and hymns, but they're more. And that quote helps us kind of see like, wow, there is so much here in the Psalter, And I hope we catch a glimpse of that during these expositions. So again, the point of the Sunday school time will be to do an exposition of the psalm. It will be, we will be working through texts. We'll be looking for the main point. It'll be more sermonic in form uh, and less, you know, Sunday school lecture type. And we just want to have a feel for the various psalms, hearing them taught, hearing God's word explained, um, and I hope, and Aaron hopes, that it will be edifying time for our church this summer. With that, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for the multifaceted scriptures that you've providentially preserved for us, that you've given for our instruction, for our prophet in particular, we thank you for this poem book that helps us think freshly about you and your purposes and your works, that helps us think from different perspective and angles on the experiences we face in this life as your children on both our joys and our trials and our hardships. I ask that as we commit ourselves to reading your word and in particular the psalms, that you would use them to edify us, that we would grasp the truths that you've inspired that are there for us in these words, every word that you've given to us by your grace, and that we would be grown from our time. I ask that you would bless our summer series and the men that are going to teach us and explain the various psalms to us, and that we would all be more familiar, more comfortable with the psalter, and that you would have specific word for each of us, as you will know our needs from the various Psalms and the different things that are emphasized that we will hear taught. Bless our fellowship during this break and bless the preaching of your word and the singing of praises to you in our next hour. In our Lord's name I pray, amen.